Hi, it's Mark Stenson. I'd like to tell you about a new sponsor who's unlocking creativity in a unique way. It's an app called Headphone. That's H-E-A-D-F-O-N-E. On Headphone, you can listen to premium audio dramas like romance, thriller, and horror. I was just listening to Dracula Reborn that breathes new life into Bram Stoker's classic tale. Right now, Headphone is offering listeners a 10% discount when you use this code to subscribe. Mark Creativity 10. So go to headphone.page.link slash markcreativity10. I'll put that link in the show notes. And thanks again to the folks at Headphone for their support of the podcast. Tap into your most original thinking. Organize your ideas and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. And creativity spans the gamut of engineering and ingenuity. And I'm so glad today to talk to a guest who has written about that, studied that, and developed a whole way of telling stories about ingenuity and the engineering behind things that we make. And that's the title of his book. Bill Hammock, welcome to the show. Mark, thank you. I'm happy to be here. He's the author of a new book called The Things We Make, The Unknown History of Invention from Cathedrals to Soda Cans. Bill, I knew I was going to be talking to the engineering guy, a great Mm -hmm. handle that you've developed for yourself, and an author of this book. I did not know I would be speaking with such a YouTube star. Uh, (laughs) How do you think engineering became the internet sensation (laughs) that it's become for you? I wish I had an answer to that. (laughs) That is at the heart of your podcast. (laughs) We're talking about creating things. But there's a way in which at the beginning we were a little bit alone uh, in doing it. And I think also it's partly that one of the hallmarks of new media is you aggregate an audience now around the world that's interested in a subject that, you know, only in the U.S. or only in the U.K. or only in Spain or wherever, you would never aggregate enough people that were interested in it. And so I think it's a it's really a new media phenomenon. My favorite line about new media versus old media, and, and let's be careful here. We're, I'll speak for myself. I'm an old guy. <laughs> when I say new media, just for your young viewers, media, right? Yes. <laughs> but in the days when it was really controlled, you couldn't have an obese middle-aged man talk 12 minutes about a pop can, which is what I do on YouTube. <laughs> uh, they would have said uh, with some reason that that wouldn't be interesting to anybody. And part of new media is the low costs of distribution, low cost of production, and you can test out uh, that kind of thing. Yes. And they're really great videos. The simplicity and the production, first of all. And so it is all about the story. And why don't we go there? It's like the story of how we create things and then how we make them. Mm-hmm. And isn't it an interesting bridge then to think about all the sort of inventions and, and ideas we have, moving that over into the actual production? When you deal a lot with how did they make it? Not just how did they come up with the idea, but how did they make it? And that is a f- absolutely a fascinating thing to me. And I'll, t- I'll tell you, one of the frustrations with it is much of how they make it is a trade secret, mm-hmm. right? We would like to go in and film diaper lines and things, production of diapers. But y- you can find some video of that, but it's it's pretty old. You can't see the modern stuff. Or one that I've wanted to do for years is how 
I, I got how do they put the ketchup in those ketchup packets mm-hmm. that you have right at at your fa- at a fast food restaurant and there's no chance they will let me in there to see how that happens and so that's actually one of the hard parts of, about the work but what I find fascinating is the reliability from these the reproducibility it turns out if you buy things and one out of a hundred fails you'll stop buying that mm-hmm. right that sounds extraordinary but no we're well past that point for most of the things we have these little cheese sticks my kids eat if the, if that particular brand doesn't open we're done with those you can find ones that do open well so that to me it is those two things together as you put how do you conceive it and then how do you design a way to make it and to manufacture it and as i just said to make it reliable that's mm-hmm. fascinating to me Yes, because we, we do live in somewhat of a zero defect expectation, don't we, as, we do. as consumers? it's Yes, exactly. And, it, and part and of that's driven and by if that digital. little notch on that little plastic packet doesn't work right, right. <laughs> you're right, we give right. up. And I, I speak from experience. I was trying to open a cheese stick last night, and, and I was hungry and couldn't, and so I, I noted that, you know, that brand very yes. quickly. And your research for this book does span the sort of simple everyday objects, all the way to right there in the subtitle is cathedrals. And we often are fascinated by this. Look, they didn't have the same science. They didn't have the CAD programs and the art programs that we have today. How did they make that? And you really get into that. Yes. And and, and the reason I chose cathedrals specifically was because I think it strips bare the engineering method because it removes all the stuff that you talked about that's confused for the engineering method. The tool is often confused for the method. And it's not to say that none of that is is useful. We want all of that. And when you look at how they did these cathedrals, they were using what are called rules of thumb. So approximations. And the one that I go into deepest in the book, and I I have a video about it, is how they size the thickness of a wall so that the cathedral wouldn't collapse. But there was a, a thousands of these that they would use and that they would pass down. And that's the essence of the engineering method is it's not hypothesis driven. It's not even necessarily science driven. And this is something that I do find upsets people. It is its own method and it uses trial and error. It uses scientific information where you can get it. It uses rules of thumb principally, which are a shorthand way to to design something without having to construct from first principles why it should work or why it doesn't work. And it's a fundamentally different way to operate than science. So I do go in a bit to, to how they size those walls and the rule of them that they use, which we would articulate as it's a certain percentage of the walls, the, the arches width, but they would never have said it like that. Instead, they have a, had a method to use string to do a geometric construction without necessarily understanding that they were doing, they were not saying to themselves, I can't do the math, let me do it this way. They were saying, I have been told to do it this way, and it has worked since Roman times, and let's continue that. Mm. Because the And the point that I think you were alluding to there is the purpose of the engineering method is to solve problems before science has reached conclusions. That's contradictory to most people and is the reason that it exists. And so in a way, this book is all about the creativity of engineers to get around uh, a lack of scientific knowledge. How do they parameterize things? How do they think about things? And we do think of engineering as a very precise, exact science, right? Uh, And yes, what did you learn then about the creative process and the way these uh, inventors think and put the ideas together? The, the first thing is that 
the, the since this is a heuristic method that it's anything that helps anything that works anything that gets you there in the case of the o-ring there's o-rings that seal the hydraulic brakes uh, on buses and things that person had a particular view of how an o-ring worked and how you would as it moved back and forth it would become i can't remember it was either hardened or softened or whatever and it allowed him to invent this o-ring seal but it was a completely wrong way that it operated right mm -hmm. but it gave him a visual image it gave him something something to work with something to iterate around and i think that's a, another point a lot of these are iterative uh, the most interesting person I talk about in the book is a guy named Osborne Reynolds, who was just a very visual thinker and always was making, oh, he wanted to understand about hail. And so he would cast hailstones very quickly in plaster and then have a something he could study and hold and look at. And was always described as being a very odd, perhaps even just a, a visual thinker, which I thought was interesting, which is not something that I do, by the way. My I struggle with the video medium because I'm not a particularly visual thinker and have to use techniques to, to get around that. And one of those videos that has garnered, what, 18 million views or something yeah, yeah. is about the soda can. And you think, what more simple idea than the soda can could we make a video out of? And yet people, I see in the comments, people say, this comes up in my feed every couple of years and I have to watch it another four times because I'm fascinated by it. Right. We, would, <laughs> we would love to know the magic sauce about that. We know a little bit. Uh, I'm genuinely interested in a pop can and, and that comes across. Maybe there's also some things that we did that make it resonate. We're talking about the cylindrical shape of a pop can and how important that cylindrical shape is rather than spherical, rather than uh, a cuboid. And if we actually go around a series of tables in a circle, so there's a way in which the visual imagery resonates. And I should know that was made with a, uh, a colleague, Steve Kranz, who has a very good visual sense. And I think I was the one who said, I'd like to go around the tables. And he's the one who constructed how we do it and and made the video look like it does. In fact, on my website, there's a version of him delivering the script, I believe. And you can see him him doing it. And I hope my recollection is correct. I'm happy to give Steve all the credit for that. But That's yeah. great. That's something I wanted to explore with you too, Bill, is this idea of collaboration and teamwork. It's sometimes underappreciated that even the great inventors the name brand inventors, worked with teams, worked with mentees, worked with other collaborators to get these things off the ground. What did you learn about that in your research? The prime example we use is in, in the book is Edison, which is the main example of the sole inventor. And we think about Edison as inventing the light bulb. And I don't want to take anything away from Edison. I know what his achievement was. There were many people making light bulbs before. They didn't work particularly long. He was able to make a long-lasting one. And there, we want to we freeze in our mind that moment of Edison doing that and don't look at the whole system of development that happened over 30 or 40 years. Uh, for example, the filaments that he used, the carbon filaments that made Edison's light bulbs burn were refined by a guy named Maxim, who was most famous for a machine gun today, the Maxim machine gun. Mm -hmm. And then they're very odd, creative kind of guy. And we don't, th there was also a, a, a engineer who developed a way to, to manufacture those filaments. And I tell those stories in there because they get lost in just talking about Edison. 
And the problem about just talking about Edison is we miss the engineering, right? We think, okay, he invented it, we're done. Yet there was a whole lot that happened between the time his bulb was out and until we reached the tungsten filament and then continuing and, and maybe even ending in this day as LEDs take over. And one of the arguments I make is that by not looking at it as a system of people that do it, is we actually lose the engineering and we lose sight of it. So interesting. And what were the implications of all this for your own creative process? This is not your first book. I don't know, seven or eight before this. You even talked about how engineers need to grow, I think was the word, a long tail, thinking long term. Yeah. And what are the implications then for your own research, your own writing, your own, all the way through publication? It, first of all, I'm trained as an engineer. So maybe this is reflected or in my DNA already. But in creating a video, to a degree in creating a book, first of all, it's very iterative. I get in there and I'm moving into TikTok. Maybe by the time this is out, the TikTok videos will be out. And I've been filming over the summer. But the first thing I did is set up the camera, turn it sideways right? <laughs> and then ask myself, what could we do with that? What did that mean? How would we film that? How did it look with this lens and that lens? And I figured out two ways I like to shoot them and the kind of things we could do. So that was an iterative aspect to it. And I think the other thing is everybody in their cre the way they create has a certain strength. And the thing that I like is structure. So I rely on, if you will, craft to help eliminate the possibilities. Because if we have a blank piece of paper, it's just everything. So maybe we're, if to go to TikTok again, because it's on my mind, what do we do in 40 seconds? You only have 40. And I started in radio and I did about 200 pieces for public radio and you, they were two and a half minutes. And I loved writing to that time frame. You learned techniques and you learned what you could do. And I want craft to help me. And I also spend a lot of time on structure, which seems to be the strength. And you mentioned this a little bit or alluded to it, that, that in my videos, you have this presentation that you can follow very carefully. And that takes a long time to do. And that's where I spend most of my effort is what is the order of the information going to do, to, to what's going to happen with it? Because in a video... You want to write in these small 30-second circles where you make a point and it links to the next point. You never want to say there are three things that are important. One, blah, blah, blah. Two, blah, blah, blah. Three, you've lost people. And instead, you have to work out that structure so that it follows through and so they can keep it all in their mind as it's going along. And so I did, I released recently four videos that were about 12 minutes apiece or the companion videos to that book. And for each of those, I wrote out about a page or two pages with what I call an if-then statement. And I'll tell you right away, it comes from, I think it's Trey Parker at South Park. <laughs> they <laughs> talked about their creative process, and I'm always reading about people's creative process and extracting what I can. And they said, you never want to write something and something and. You want, if this happens, then this happens. Because that gives you a structure and a momentum. And I took that and I used a thesaurus and I found a lot of contract, uh, not contractions, what's the fancy word for wherefore, whether, thus. Yes, um, these transition uh, phrases. Yes. These transitions, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good grammar word for them. Yes, and I have is. them all in front of me and I will write this whole statement. If, they, if the medieval masons learned this, then this happened, which means, and so I have this whole structure worked out before 
I write a script. And at the same time, we've been shooting some of the close-ups. And so I have a set of images in my mind of what some of the things are that we're going to be showing. But that structure to me is where is what I think lets the creativity happen, which I think is paradoxical to some people. Yes. Right? Um, Especially for those who do think in structure, I must have the five points and I must list them out and, mm-hmm. in the order that they occur. So exactly. Yeah. And but it's it's surprising how long that takes to at least for me, I should say that. I I think for for, all of us. I'm glad you brought up the radio background. I couldn't help but notice just a little bit of a Bill Curtis inflection in your voice. So you (laughs) you come at it naturally, I think. But but I met Bill Curtis very early on before I did radio. We had a meeting with him. The nicest man in the world. Yes, We're in there. We're meeting with him. We're trying to pitch him a show. And his dog comes over and he pets it. He's very nice and very nice. And after the dog leaves, what's the dog's name is i don't know it's somebody else's dog from next door and it just comes in here that's so good i used to work next door to bill curtis and so i would see him at lunch a lot (laughs) at this particular restaurant and he talks just like that at lunch and you're like i'm having lunch with a documentary (laughs) so he's slightly older but i think we're both midwesterners i was born in indiana raised in michigan and actually had a, a southern indiana accent which I worked with a voice teacher to get rid of it when I was in my 30s, I think. Yeah. Um, early 30s. Um, I worked with her. But yes, I think it's largely, yes. largely. Well, picking up on these Midwest roots, we're talking with you uh, at the campus of the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Right. How did all of this storytelling either affect or derive from, perhaps, your teaching? You've got to be able to uh, expound this to students in, well, there's in a way some, that there's some find, there. yeah there's some there but i, I will t- I'm, I'm going to take the route back a little further for you and i think this explains everything we, we can expand but it certainly <laughs> is is the place to start my father my mother brother was a botanist okay as kids we were doing science things and she would freeze a bee so slow it down wouldn't kill it but we could then study it and watch it and she would prick her finger and put blood under a microscope we had that and showed us My father was a theater professor. (laughs) I like to argue I come by it naturally because I remember sitting and watching him do his craft. He did something called blocking. The theater director has to work out where people are going to go. Where are you going to enter? Who are you going to embrace? What are you going to do? What kind of business are you going to do? And uh, he would sit with a piece of paper and coins. And the paper was the image of the set. And of course, this was the 1960s, no computers. And I can remember him working that out and describing that to me. And it was one of my first exposures to craft in terms of doing something creative. So it's certainly that fed into the teaching. And it certainly is something that I want to do. And I spent a lot of time early on in this studying narrative and digging into historiography. So how historians think about narrative and how do they tell a story correctly and accurately. And I spent a lot of time reading in that literature, and I loved it. It was congenial to what I wanted to do and what I like. But I had an explicit study of it early on and tried to apply it in the in the radio pieces. And in fact, I still want to do more narrative things, even more narrative, and I haven't had the chance to, but I'm about to start a new project, and I have a blank yellow pad, and I'm taking notes, and yes, maybe it will come about. I don't know. 
And is this a lesson for creative people overall? First of all, we always have the next thing in mind. We publish the book and then it's what's next. And then we're doing the TikTok and we still have that sort of over the horizon look, don't we? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I've been, I'll just tell you right now, we make nothing. I've been reading about Neanderthal technology. <laughs> they make glues. They made this. There's the engineering method. What That's fascinating to me. What can I do with that? What should I do with that? And uh, so often I will spend in an early phase of a project, a lot of time reading and just reading quickly and rapidly and maybe even making a sketch of what something would look like, a book would look like, a video would look like. It, it may well get discarded, but again, we're back to that uh, iterative thing. But you're right. I'm al- always thinking of the next thing. Because that being creative is the fun part. If, if a day doesn't go by where I haven't done something like that, I uh, it's an uncomfortable day uh, for me. Mm-hmm. At least creativity as I, I define it. Administrators are creative, but it's lost on me. Yes. Um, and I see glimpses of it, but that's not what I want to do, <laughs> nor uh, yeah. would anybody want me to do that. You know? <laughs> right. We have to know our, our craft. Yeah. Yes. My uh, guest is Bill Hammock, and I'll put all your links in the show notes, Bill. The book is The Things We Make, and the YouTube channel is Engineering Guy Video. Okay. Engineer Guy Video. If you Google aluminum cam engineering, yes. <laughs> you'll find it. You're going to find it. <laughs> I, I want to close with this thought of encouragement and inspiration for the creative people listening. And this idea of coming up with the idea and then needing to execute. I often say in my intro, launching your work out into the world sometimes needs the most attention. Hitting the send button, publish, publish, publish. What do uh, we need to hear from you well, on so, that topic? Well, I, I'll tell you two things about it. But one is that I found it useful when I was doing radio to have to do one a week. Mm-hmm. And because people, the most question I got the most often was, where do you get your ideas from? And the answer was, I have to. Because if I go in there, I, w- I would write three and then tape, uh, go in and tape all three and then have three weeks to write uh, three more. And I can't go in there and look at the sound engineer and say nothing. And that's not a particularly satisfying answer, but it does tell you that you need to do. You need to have some scheduling. You need to have some goal that you're going to get to. And the other thing is on the opposite end, is I have posted in my office here a quote from uh, Samuel uh, Taylor Coleridge, which I used in at the front of a book I did on the airship. And let me, I'm, I've got it right here and I'll, read it to you, and then we'll see what that does for creativity. And Coleridge was, I think, 18th century, if I remember. And he says, never to lose an opportunity of reasoning against the head-dimming, heart-dampening principle of judging a work by its defects, not its beauties. Every work must have the former. We know it a priori. But every work has not the latter. And he, therefore, who discovers them tells you something that you could not with certainty or even with probability have anticipated. And I find as a creator that I like that because that means let go, let go. Look, everything I've made has defects in it. I'm not going to tell you what they are. Go read the comments. You know (laughs) what I mean? But what you are after is that beauty that you can achieve within that and that you're not going to get perfection and you just have to let it go. And so I find that obviously a way to do, that's a way to do criticism, but as a creator, I find that is heartwarming. That is encouraging. 
to let it go, to let it be out there and whatever defects it has. And let's hope they're not lethal. Mm-hmm. And let's hope there's beauty in that. And yes. find your lane that you can create that kind of beauty. Well, and to continue to put the work, of course, but yourself out there too. You do interviews like this. I yes. talk to people who I haven't met before. I see your book on the bookshelf and I think this sounds like a fun guy to talk to. And uh, we've known each other for 10 minutes now. And I think we've hit it off pretty well. But we, we have to put ourselves out there, don't we? I have to correct you. I'm a radio guy. We've known each other for 11 minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I get a, well, I you're a also speech. an engineer, but so accurate. Exactly. But when I give a speech, I don't do very many of them. But I always say, look, I'll, this will be done in 52 minutes. I'm a radio guy. It'll be over. And you, we have people that time it and they're like, wow, how did you do that? How did you know? It's, oh, I know. Well, I'll, give, I'll give you a clue. It's 160 words per minute. Yeah, I love that. And <laughs> I think, of my, thumb that I learned and I think of my therapist friends. I see our time is up. <laughs> very good. Oh, very fun. My guest is Bill Hammock the author of The Things We Make. Bill, what a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. And we'll be sure to watch for those TikToks and see how that's going for you. <laughs> well, I'll be watching. <laughs> and listeners, come back again next time. As I mentioned, we've stopped off in Champaign-Urbana today and stamped our creative passport at the University of Illinois. But we're going to continue our around-the-world journeys, talking to creators and creative practitioners everywhere about how they get inspired and how they organize their ideas. And as we've been discussing, how they gain the confidence and the connections to launch their work out into the world. So until next time, I'm Mark Stenson, and we're unlocking your world of creativity. Bye for now. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media creators of IntelliQ Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and ThePeaceRoom.Love. If you like this podcast, here's another show that you'll like from BSB Media. The Patients Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey. It features interviews with healthcare leaders, patient advocates, medical providers, and researchers. Presented by 83 Bar. Look for The Patient Speak on your favorite podcast app.